Welcome to the Daily Kofefi. Today is Thursday, December 19th. I'm your host, Carter Laren. I'm not joined by Carrie today. We are sans Carrie today. She will return for Kofefi tomorrow. We'll do our live Kofefi that we do every Friday. Um, I wanted to uh, I want to make this Kofefi rather quick. We did a deprogrammed today live with Carrie, so I know a lot of you saw that. But I did want to talk about something briefly that I thought was worth mentioning. Um, as a reminder, please go to uh, BitChute to watch us if you can, rather than YouTube, although liking and subscribing on YouTube is still helpful right now. Uh, also, you can go to unsafespace.com slash shop to get an array of unsafe space apparel that also supports us. And you can go to Subscribestar, uh, get your name listed in the credits, which you'll see at the end of this show if you if you stick in, stick around. So... Um, what I wanted to, to mention is something unusual. I, I usually, Carrie and I both make fun of the Washington Post for being part of the cathedral. They are part of the cathedral. They're biased, obviously, and not a lot of good comes out of the mainstream corporate media. Uh, in fact, with the recent impeachment, it was reporters at the Washington Post actually posted themselves having a celebratory dinner celebrating the impeachment of President Trump. In fact, the Babylon Bee has already jumped on this opportunity to make fun of the Washington Post with this article, Unbiased Washington Post Launches Celebratory Fireworks as Trump Impeached. Uh, so that's that's what I think of the Washington Post. That's what the Babylon Bee thinks of the Washington Post. That's what most rational people Think of the Washington Post. We recognize their bias. However, it is important to give credit where credit is due when someone does a good job. Um, I think it's important. And, you know, impeachment has been, if you'll notice, the mainstream media, uh, including the Washington Post, but also, you know, the, the channels CNN, uh, ABC, NBC, New York Times, all these outlets have been pushing the impeachment narrative. It's all they talk about, impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. It's very important. We have to talk about impeachment. And obviously, we don't talk about impeachment on this show because we don't think it's very important. We think it's a distraction, uh, especially because he's not actually going to be removed from office, so it doesn't really matter. Um, it's a distraction. It's a distraction from other more important things. <clears throat> and today, I'd like to briefly mention one of the other important things it's a distraction from because you may not have realized this. And I'm going to give credit where credit is due here. This comes from the Washington Post, um, a reporter by the name of Craig Whitlock. And just to give you a little bit of background here, um, the, Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, which um, many of you, sure, I hope everyone is, is aware of, maybe not, um, we've been fighting in Afghanistan for, I think, 18 years. It's the longest-running um, armed conflict in U.S. history. Obviously, this was in uh, supposed response to 9-11. Now, in 2008, which uh, obviously was 11 years ago, um, Congress created an, created an agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Now, originally, it was supposed to perform audits and look for waste and that kind of thing. But 
in 2014, the uh, agency, or yeah, I guess the office, SIGAR, it's called, is the acronym, they uh, decided to do kind of a little side venture, uh, an $11 million side venture. Be nice to just decide to do an $11 million side venture, sure. Um, This one, although, turned out to be a good idea. Um, It was titled Lessons Learned. And this was a project that they undertook to diagnose policy failures in Afghanistan um, so that the United States would maybe not repeat mistakes that they think had possibly been made. And this uh, report was released, but largely uh, a lot of the interviews and underlying stuff, the report was kind of filled with bureaucratic jargon. It wasn't really very um, damning, although if you read between the lines, it looked like it was it was pretty bad uh, what they uncovered, but they didn't release any of the underlying interviews here. And so credit where credit is due, the Washington Post went and uh, filed the Freedom of Information Act uh, together with, I don't know if they did the, this together with, there's the National Security Archive also filed for some information here. Um, and they wanted to understand, um, they wanted to take a look at the interviews and the research that was done to create this lessons learned report. And earlier uh, this, I don't know if it was this month or last month, so sorry, I might have the dates wrong, but I think it was earlier this month, the um, more than 2,000 pages of interviews were released. They, the Washington Post won their action f- to get access to this information. And what we learn here is quite I won't say shocking because um, I know many of you, like me, don't trust the the government anyway and expect them to be off fighting illegitimate wars, wasting money, causing problems, creating the very problems that they then tax us to solve later, which they just use that money to create bigger problems. Like, a lot of us are already very cynical about this. But um, nevertheless, this is a pretty devastating report. So the Washington Post... I'll put this up on the screen here. Uh, as I mentioned, the guy's name is Craig Whitlock. Looks like he also worked with Leslie Shapiro and Armand Imendome. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, titled, A Secret History of the War. And I highly recommend, I don't recommend that you pay for the Washington Post normally. I don't even recommend you pay for this. You can get an access to a certain number of articles a month for free. And if you just switch browsers, that gets reset, or you can reset your cookies. Anyway, they have a secret history of the war. And it says here, in a cache of previously unpublished interviews and memos, key insiders reveal what went wrong during the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. So they got access to this information, and they have kind of four themes from these documents. There's a lot to read here. But I do want to talk just a little bit about some of the stuff that I read. So... The first major theme here, and this is the one I want to focus on, is that, quote, year after year, U.S. officials failed to tell the public the truth about the war in Afghanistan. So let's take a look at one of the, this is part one of this series. It was published on December 9th, so this is 10 days ago, by Craig Whitlock. Let's just walk through this. I normally don't want to just walk through other people's articles, but this is a great, great article, um, and it really reveals, uh, I think, the the 
amount of lying and the amount of uh, the extent to which government bureaucrats will go to spin a narrative that is completely fictional in order to get what they want. And this is most damning to the Bush and Obama administrations, although I think you could, um, you know, they, they, they cast a little bit of shadow here, some shade on Trump as well. Uh, but when this was conducted, Trump wasn't in office. Um, and it's not clear what's changed. And obviously, if you'll recall, the mainstream media, when Trump has been rattling sabers recently about, hey, I'm going to I'm going to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. Of course, the the cathedral, the mainstream media went absolutely crazy. That's a horrible idea, blah, 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 making progress in Afghanistan. But the truth is, we haven't been making progress in Afghanistan. Let's let's just skim through this article really quickly. I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. I do recommend you read it, even though it's the Washington Post. So, okay, talks about the documents being released. They're part of this federal project, which I mentioned. Okay. They tried to shield some identities. They talk about how the identities of everyone isn't actually obvious, uh, and some of them are still shielded. However, let's walk through and, and take a look at some of the things that we learned from these interviews with uh, people involved in Afghanistan. I think it was over 400, more than 400 insiders offered unrestrained criticism of what went wrong in Afghanistan. All right, so let's take a look. One, Douglas Lute a three-star army general who served as White House's Afghanistan, Afghan war czar during the Bush and Obama administrations. He says, we were devoid of fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. What are we trying to do here? We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. Okay, so we kind of know that. If the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, 2,400 lives lost, who will say this war is in vain? So, talks about some... Numbers here since 2001, more than three quarters of a million U.S. troops have deployed to Afghanistan, many repeatedly. Of those, 2,300 died there and 20,589 were wounded in action. So a lot of loss of American life and limb. So let's go through, let's go through what, what, what we learn here. First of all, since 2001... The Defense Department, the Department, the State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development have spent or appropriated between $934 billion and $978 billion. Now, so basically a trillion dollars has been spent on this. That money came from you in the form of taxes, uh, or it came from your children in the form of uh, printing money and devaluing the currency, or it came from your children in the form of loans. So, okay, those figures do not include money spent by other agencies, such as the CIA and Department of Veterans Affairs, okay, which is responsible for medical care. Well, 20,000 wounded veterans, I imagine that's a lot of medical bills, too. So, okay, Jeffrey Eggers, a retired Navy SEAL and White House staffer for Bush and Obama, says, what did we get for this trillion-dollar effort? Was it worth a trillion dollars? After the killing of Osama bin Laden, I said that Osama was probably laughing in his watery grave considering how much we have spent on Afghanistan. Now, remember, um, part of the strategy for insurgents fighting large superpowers like the U.S. is to fight a war of attrition. It's to tire them out and make them spend, you know, if it takes, if it costs them $1,000 to take down a million-dollar missile, they're, they'll keep doing that all day, right? So that's part of their strategy. So they've spent, we've spent a trillion dollars 
fighting in Afghanistan. Let's hope that there was something to show for it. Well, according to this article and these documents, this article says, the documents also contradict a long chorus of public statements from U.S. presidents, military commanders, and diplomats who assured Americans year after year that they were making progress in Afghanistan and the war was worth fighting. It turns out that is not true. They have not been making progress. And we're going to get into a little bit here because they cherry-picked some data to try and make it sound like that. But let's take a look. Okay, several of the interviews described explicit and sustained efforts by the U.S. government to deliberately mislead the public. They said it was common at military headquarters to distort statistics to make it appear that the U.S. was winning the war. Every data point was altered to present the best picture possible, says Bob Crowley, an Army colonel who served... uh, as an advisor to commanders in 2013 and 2014. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced everything that we were doing was right. And so we became a self-licking ice cream cone. Funny, funny metaphor. All right. The head of the federal agency that conducted the interviews, John Sopko, acknowledged to the Post that the documents show that the American people have been constantly have constantly been lied to. We have been constantly lied to. That's not just by the government, although it is by the government. It's also by the cathedral that doesn't call the government out on this stuff, with the exception, in this case, of the Washington Post and uh, this reporter. So it talks about how this investigation started. They interviewed more than 600 people with firsthand experience with the war. Most were Americans, but also NATO allies and Afghan officials. So they published this report, which I mentioned. They published this report in 2016, but the underlying data wasn't available. According to this article, the report was written in dense bureaucratic prose, focused on an alphabet of government initiatives, and it left out the harshest and most frank criticisms. (laughs) Imagine that. The government report uh, had to report some bad news, and they obfuscated it with (laughs) jargon and bureaucratic prose, as this reporter writes. Here's an example of the introduction to one report. We found the stabilization strategy and the programs used to achieve it were not properly tailored to the Afghan context, and successes in stabilizing Afghan districts rarely lasted longer than the physical presence of coalition troops and civilians. Uh, That's like a long-winded bureaucratic way to say we've been failing. So... They got a hold of a bunch of these interviews, and they started looking through these interviews. So according to this article, the interview records are raw and unedited. And and by the way, they do link to them in this article, so you don't have to trust the Washington Post. So I like that. You can just go read the source material. They have links to the source material right here, which is great. We don't invade poor countries to make them rich, James Dobbins, a former U.S. Uh, senior U.S. diplomat who served as special envoy to Afghanistan under Bush and Obama, told government interviewers, we don't invade authoritarian countries to make them democratic. We invade violent countries to make them peaceful. And we clearly failed in Afghanistan. Yes, we did. Although we're still there. They also obtained these things called snowflakes, which is funny. These are little notes that Rumsfeld had. Uh, So the Washington Post got a hold of these snowflakes. So this is Rumsfeld talking to his staff in kind of a terse, a very direct manner. And here's an example of one of them. This is Rumsfeld. He writes, I may be impatient. In fact, I know I'm a bit bit impatient. We are never going to get the U.S. military out of Afghanistan unless we take care to see that there's something going on that will provide the stability that will be necessary for us to leave. Help, he wrote. This is in 2002. 
Only six months after the war started, here we are 18 years later. Okay, or almost, almost 18 years later. But meanwhile, these are the things that they're saying in public. The history of, this is George Bush, the history of military conflict in Afghanistan has been one of initial success, followed by long years of floundering and ultimate failure. We're not going to repeat that mistake. Meanwhile, Rumsfeld is sitting here saying, uh, we've got a problem. Okay. So as the war dragged on, people started to have different goals. And these goals were never really resolved, people within the government. So... Some wanted to turn Afghanistan into a democracy. Others wanted to transform Afghan culture and elevate women's rights. Others wanted to reshape regional balance of power among Pakistan, India, Iran, and Russia. Um, one U.S. official said, With the AFPAC strategy, there was a present under the Christmas tree for everyone. By the time you were finished, you had so many priorities and aspirations, it was like no strategy at all. There's a shocker. The lessons learned interviews also reveal how U.S. military commanders struggled to articulate who they were fighting, let alone why. Was al-Qaeda the enemy or the Taliban? Was Pakistan a friend or an adversary? What about the Islamic State and the bewildering array of foreign jihadists, let alone the warlords on the CIA's payroll? According to the documents, the U.S. government never settled on an answer. But they sent your sons to die, and they taxed you for it. Uh, Here we go. U.S. troops couldn't tell friend from foe. This is an, uh, an unnamed former advisor to Army Special Forces. It talks here about how he try, he's, people are asking him, where are the good guys and where are the bad guys? And he's trying to explain, I don't know. I have no visibility into who the bad guys are, Rumsfeld complained in one of his snowflakes in 2003. We are woefully deficient in human intelligence. This is Rumsfeld saying this internally. Here's Obama in 2009. The days of providing a blank check are over. It must be clear that Afghans will have to take responsibility for their security and that America has no interest in fighting an endless war in Afghanistan. So even as he's saying they're not going to fall into this trap of nation building, they totally fell into the trap of nation building. So the U.S. allocated more than $133 billion to build up Afghanistan. Uh, More than... (laughs) After adjusted for inflation, more than was spent to revive the whole of Western Europe with the Marshall Plan after World War II. It's a hell of a lot of money. In fact, they threw so much money that people were complaining they didn't know how to actually allocate the money. It was too much money they were taking from your mouths and giving to people in Afghanistan who were supposed to be distributing it. But it was even the officials were even complaining that it was too much money. We'll get into that. So they tried to create from scratch a democratic government in Kabul modeled after their own in Washington. It was a foreign concept, duh. It was a foreign concept to Afghans who are accustomed to tribalism, monarchism, communism, and Islamic law. Another unidentified former State Department official. Our policy was to create a strong central government, which was idiotic, because Afghanistan does not have a history of a strong central government. The time frame for creating a strong central government is 100 years, which we didn't have. Although, who knows? I mean, we've got, you know, we're only 18 years in, so... Uh, Maybe another 82 years, we'll still be fighting in Afghanistan. The peak of the fighting was actually um, under Obama, under your your beloved Obama, left the the peaceful Obama, the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, was responsible for the peak of the fighting from 2009 to 2012. He actually, uh, there was a surge, if you recall, that he talked about. 
They believe that the more they spent on schools, bridges, canals, and other civil works projects, the more of your money they spent on these things, the faster security would improve. Aid workers told government interviewers it was a colossal misjudgment akin to pumping kerosene on a dying campfire just to keep the flame alive. One unnamed exec with the U.S. Agency for International Development guessed that 90% of what they spent was overkill. 90%. We lost objectivity, we were given money, told to spend it, and we did, without reason. Many aid workers blamed Congress for what they saw as a mindless rush to spend. One identified... One unidentified contractor told government interviewers he was expected to dole out $3 million daily for projects in a single Afghan district, roughly roughly the size of a U.S. county. He once asked a visiting congressman whether the lawmaker could responsibly spend that kind of money back home. And the congressman answered, Hell no. Well, sir, that's what you've just obligated us to spend, and I'm doing it for communities that live in mud huts with no windows. He replied. So Washington, quick to spend your money. All these congressmen and and presidents, quick to spend your money. Send it over there to mud huts uh, with no windows. In public, the U.S. officials insisted they had no tolerance for graft. Remember? Don't worry. We're going to rule out corruption. Well, what happens when you dump way more money than uh, can be reasonably spent on a community? And that community doesn't have actually any of the the normal uh, infrastructure that's trusted and relied upon, and they've got a history of corruption. Well, what happens? Gee, uh, the U.S. officials say they don't tolerate graft, but in the interviews, they admitted the U.S. government looked the other way while Afghan power brokers, allies of Washington, plundered with impunity. This is devastating stuff. This is damning, damning stuff. That's been happening under our noses for 18 years. Not that we didn't suspect it, but it's now known. Christopher Kolenda, an army colonel who deployed to Afghanistan several times and advised three U.S. generals in charge of the war, said the Afghan government, led by Hamid Karzai, remember him, self-organized into a kleptocracy by 2006. A kleptocracy. Ridiculous. By allowing corruption to fester, the U.S. officials told interviewers they helped destroy the popular legitimacy of the wobbly Afghan government they were fighting to prop up. With judges and police chiefs and bureaucrats extorting bribes, bribes paid for with your money, many Afghans soured on democracy and turned to the Taliban, the Taliban to enforce order because we didn't screw anything up in the Middle East. (laughs) It's not our fault. We just threw a bunch of money, created a corrupt system, and they turned to the Taliban to enforce order. Our biggest single project, sadly and inadvertently, of course, may have been the development of mass corruption, (laughs) says Crocker, who served as the top U.S. diplomat in Kabul in 2002 and again from 2011 to 2012. Once it gets to the levels I saw, when it was out there, It's somewhere between unbelievably hard and outright impossible to fix it. Hmm. What are they saying in public? Here's what General Mark Milley said in public. This army and this police force have been very, very effective in combat against the insurgents every single day, and I think it's an important story to be told across the board. Oh, okay, so they're effective. Let's take a look at that. 
hey, we're making, we're making progress. This is the kind of thing we're telling us. However, in the interviews, we find out U.S. military trainers describe the Afghan security forces as incompetent, unmotivated, and rife with deserters. They also accused Afghan commanders of pocketing salaries paid by U.S. taxpayers for tens of thousands of ghost soldiers. Oh, what do you know? What do you know? None, none expressed confidence that the Afghan army and police could ever fend off, much less defeat the Taliban on their own. More than 60,000 members of the Afghan security forces have been killed. A casualty rate that U.S. commanders have called unsustainable. One unidentified U.S. soldier said that special forces teams hated, hated the Afghan police, whom they trained and worked with, calling them, quote, this is an awesome quote, awful, the bottom of the barrel in the country that is already at the bottom of the barrel. So that's what's being, that's what's being said on the ground. What's being said publicly? Hey, we're very effective. Things are, woohoo, things are great. They're going to be able to take over. Don't worry. It's all good. A U.S. military officer estimated that one-third of police recruits were drug addicts or Taliban. Only a third. Another called them stealing fools who looted so much from fuel from U.S. bases that they perpetually smelled of gasoline. You can't, this is a, this would be funny if this wasn't actually happening to real people with our money. But it is. This is like, a, it's like a comedy. It's like a movie. Thinking we could build the military that fast and that well was insane an unnamed senior U.S. aid official told government interviewers. Okay, so, meanwhile, as U.S. hopes for Afghanistan security forces failed to materialize, but we were being told that they were great, Afghanistan became the world's leading source of opium. The United States has spent about $9 billion to fight the problem over the past 18 years. Let's see how that's done. How was your $9 billion spent? Survey says... Afghan farmers are cultivating more opium poppies than ever. Woohoo! Last year, Afghan was responsible for 82% of global opium production, according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Oh, so that, that money's well spent. Good job! The war on drugs fails overseas also. Thanks. Thanks, government. Okay. <clears throat> In the lessons learned interview, former officials said almost everything they did to constrain opium farming backfired. <laughs> Duh. But let's look at some of the brilliant things they did. First, oh, wait, we'll get to that in a minute. Wait, here. First, they paid people. <laughs> First, Afghan poppy farmers were paid by the British to destroy their crops. What do you think, without, without looking at the screen, what do you think that result was? What happens when you pay someone to do something? They do more of it. Yes. So... They paid them to destroy the crops, which only encouraged them to grow more the next season. <laughs> Later, the U.S. government eradicated poppy fields without compensation, which only infuriated farmers and encouraged them to side with ah, the Taliban again. Yeah, none of this is our fault. None of this is the U.S. fault. It's all, it's all the fault of other people. It's not the U.S. We're not doing anything to cause these problems in the Middle East. We stated that our goal is to establish a flourishing market economy said Douglas Lute, who I mentioned before, the White House's Afghan war czar. I thought we should have specified a flourishing drug trade. This is the only part of the market that's working. <laughs> He's got a sense of humor anyway. Okay, great. 
From the beginning, Washington never really figured how to incorporate a war on drugs into its war on Al-Qaeda. <laughs> yeah. No single agency was in charge, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we talked about some of this. Okay, here we go. What are they saying? What are they telling the public? And, and what are the lapdog media reporting? Are we losing this war? Absolutely no way. Can the enemy win it? Absolutely no way. No, everything is peachy. Everything is fine. We just need more of your hard-earned dollars. And actually, could you squeeze out a few more suns that we could go have bombed by uh, IEDs? That would be great. Okay. Let's see. A few days after the U.S. started bombing the Taliban, a reporter asked Bush, can you avoid being drawn into a Vietnam-like quagmire in Afghanistan? Do you remember this? And then Rumsfeld made fun of the word quagmire. Bush is like, no, 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 of course not. We learned, we learned our lessons. Oh, yeah, I'm very, I'm very smart. I learned all the lessons. Uh, so did Obama. Obama learned, don't worry. Every, we all learned the lessons. Trust your leaders. Um, all together now, quagmire, Rumsfeld joked at a news conference in 2001. 2001! Look at their, they're derisively mocking people who ask a legitimate question. Do you have any clue what the hell you're doing in the Middle East? Oh, how, how dare you call it a quagmire? You fools. You fools for questioning us and calling it a quagmire. Here we are 18 years later. Afghanistan poppy production is up for the farmers, and uh, it's a kleptocracy. Yay. And, oh, and uh, did I mention the lives lost? Right. Okay. So, but throughout the Afghan war... Documents show that U.S. military officials have res resorted to an old tactic from Vietnam, manipulating public opinion. You don't say. You don't say. I wonder why no one trusts the government. I wonder why Trump gets elected as a non-politician. I wonder why no one gives a crap about what Congress thinks about anything. In news conferences and other public appearances, those in charge of the war have followed the same talking points for 18 years. No matter how the war is going, and especially when it's going badly, they emphasize how they're making progress. So, they went through some of these snowflakes, <clears throat> these memos that Rumsfeld released, um, showed that he had received a string, quote, a string of unusually dire warnings from the war zone in 2006. Okay? Um, after returning from a fact-finding mission... Uh, Army General Barry McCaffrey reported the Taliban had made an impressive comeback. Hmm. Good for the Taliban. And predicted that we will encounter some very unpleasant surprises in the coming 24 months. Okay. Great. Afghan national leadership are collectively terrified hmm. that we will tiptoe out of Afghanistan in the coming years, leaving NATO holding the bag. And the whole thing will collapse into mayhem. Okay. Two months later, uh, Rumsfeld received a 40-page report loaded with more bad news. Enormous popular discontent is building against the Afghan government. Okay, Taliban is growing stronger. Uh, lots of corruption and incompetence. Okay, so what did Rumsfeld do? Rumsfeld, with Rumsfeld's personal blessing, the Pentagon then buried the bleak warnings and told the public a very different story. Oh, well, what'd they do? What they did was they cherry-picked some data that they felt um, would paint a great story for us. Quote, Brimming with optimism, it highlighted, this is the paper, it highlighted more than 50 promising facts and figures from the number of Afghan women trained in improved poultry management to the average speed on most roads. So, hey, you know what? Everything is going horribly, but if we only measure the speed on the roads 
And that's our metric for Afghanistan success. We are kicking ass. Five years on, there's a multitude of good news, it says. (laughs) Great. So after having just received all this bad news, said things are going to be crap for the next couple of years, the report says there's a multitude of good news. It's become fashionable in some circles to call Afghanistan a forgotten war or to say the United States has lost its focus. The facts belie the myths. This is obviously complete fabrication. They are calling you a liar, a conspiracy theorist, a someone who just manufactures myths. And they're saying, no, no, the facts are we're doing great. What facts are those? Oh, uh, the average speed on roads is up and women know how to manage poultry better but let's not talk about the facts that actually matter rumsfeld by the way loved this little this little um piece of propaganda he wrote in a memo it's an excellent piece how do we use it should it be an article an op-ed piece a handout a press briefing all of the above i think it ought to get out to a lot of people and of course it did it did and and what did the most of the mainstream media do ah just you know parrot it Tell us everything was fine. <clears throat> what do they do when Trump proposes pulling out of Afghanistan? Uh, call him a traitor. That's what they do. They call him a traitor. Okay, so the U.S. generals have always preached that the war is progressing well, no matter what's happening on the battlefield. Yeah, that's great. We're making steady progress, this commander of the 101st Airborne says in 2008, uh, even as they were urgently requesting reinforcements to cope with the rising tide of Taliban fighters. Yeah, whatever. We don't need to know the truth. Just go ahead with your stupid war. Casualty rate among U.S. and NATO troops climbs to another high. Oh, yeah, okay. What does he say about it? We're making steady, deliberate progress. Okay, great. Skeptics asked General Petraeus in March 2011, hey, uh, is our strategy working? We have some doubts. Well, what does Petraeus say? No, 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 no. The past eight months have seen important but hard-fought progress. Maybe he cited poultry management numbers again. I don't know. Um, But a year later, uh, Leon Panetta says the same thing. Oh, yeah, we're making great great progress. You know, I, I just, I just, I was almost blown up by a suicide bomber, but everything's going wonderfully. It's splendid. Uh, In 2016, after a surge in Taliban attacks on major cities, U.S. General, our Army General John W. Nicholson Jr., the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan at the time, repeated the refrain, we are seeing some progress. (laughs) These people, they just want to be fighting their little battles. Okay, so what's really happening? They're cherry-picking this data, but what's really happening? What is the actual data? Well, let's take a look at this. This is great. The toll of the war since 2001. An estimated 150,000 people have been killed in the war in Afghanistan. Let's take a look. How many Taliban? 42,000 Taliban have been killed. Great. The only problem is um, the Afghan security forces. Well, actually, the Afghan civilians uh, more have been killed than Taliban. So, you know, whatever. Take out a couple civilians. As long as you get a Taliban guy, that's fine, I guess, right? Afghan security forces, uh, it looks like about 50% more than Taliban fighters. So any normal person looks at this and says, Taliban's winning. (laughs) This is pretty good for the Taliban. They're kicking ass. But uh, what do we do? We just, uh, you know, we just make up our own narrative and cite statistics that uh, support the fact that the war is doing well. 
It was impossible to create good metrics. We tried using troop numbers, train, violence levels, control of territory, and none of it painted an accurate picture, the senior NSC official told government interviewers in 2016. The metrics were always manipulated for the duration of the war. Oh, okay. That's good. Just manipulate your metrics. Please continue lecturing us from your moral soapboxes, Congress, and taxing us and telling us that we need to pay our fair share and uh, we have a duty to the United States and just go spend our money and lives doing this and then lie to us about the metrics. That's cool. It's all good. It's fine. I'm not, I'm not crazy for opposing uh, expansion of the government and wanting you to all get fired. You know, I'm the crazy one. Okay. <sighs> Even when casually counts and other figures looked bad. So, okay. So they got to report some of these bad numbers, right? Even when they look bad, the White House and Pentagon would just, they just spin them to the point of absurdity. Suicide bombings in Kabul were portrayed as a sign of Taliban's desperation. Oh yeah, they're just desperate. Don't worry. Um, they're, they're too weak to engage in direct combat. That's why they're suicide bombing. Oh, rise in U.S. troop deaths? Oh, uh... Um, just because we're taking the fight to the enemy. What what euphemistic bullcrap. It was their explanations, the senior NSC official said. For example, attacks are getting worse. That's because there are more targets for them to fire at. <laughs> so more attacks are a false indicator of instability. Ah, oh, okay. What is good? Uh, attacks are still getting worse? Oh, well, that's because the Taliban are getting desperate. So it's actually an indicator that we're winning. If this isn't backwards, I don't know what is. And this went on for two reasons, this official says. To make everyone involved look good, that's, that's the most important reason, and to make it look like the troops and resources were having the kind of effect where removing them would cause the country to deteriorate. Of course, because all, we all know the government contractors and pseudo-government, you know, half-government, half-private agencies and government bureaucrats, everyone involved, they all, they all need their paychecks. So got to make it look good. The war is going great. The war is awesome. Don't worry about it. From ambassadors down to the low level, they all say we're doing a great job, says Michael Flynn. Really? If we're doing such a great job, why does it feel like we're losing? The answer is because we're losing. Because we're losing. <sighs> Upon the arrival in Afghanistan... Commanders were given the same mission to protect the population and defeat the enemy. He explains it well here, Flynn does. So they all went in for whatever their rotation was, nine months or six months, and they were given that mission, accepted that mission, and executed that mission, said Flynn, who later briefly served as Trump's national security, blah, blah. Then they all said when they left, they accomplished the mission. Every single commander. Not one commander is going to leave Afghanistan and say, you know what, we didn't accomplish our mission. He added, so the next guy shows up and finds their area screwed up. And then they come back and go, man, this is really bad. So they're all just lying because that's how it works. They got to lie to look good. No one checks. None of this stuff is reported to the public because the media covers for them all. So here we go. The truth is where was rarely welcome at military headquarters in Cabal. Okay, that's, that's fine. That's, that's healthy. Bad news was often stifled. This is Bob Crowley, retired Army colonel, saying this. There was more freedom to share bad news if it was small. We're running over kids with our MRAPs, MRAPs. Uh, <laughs> nice. I'm glad you're running over uh, defenseless 
innocent children in foreign countries with your armored vehicles. Uh, because those things could be changed with policy directives. So it's fine to talk about running over kids. But when we tried to air larger strategic concerns, like what the hell are we doing? He didn't, I'm adding this. But when we tried to air larger strategic concerns about the willingness, capacity, or corruption of the Afghan government, ah, it's clear it wasn't welcome. Don't talk about that. Can you talk more about killing kids with armored vehicles by running them over? Because that's okay. That's the kind of news we want. John Grafano, a Naval War College strategist who advised Marines, said military officials in the field devoted an inordinate amount of resources to churning out color-coded charts that heralded positive results. Oh, that's good. Look, they even had their own printer. They had a really expensive machine that would print really large pieces of paper, like a print shop. There would be a caveat that these are not actually scientific figures. <laughs> eh, whatever. Nor is this a scientific process. But, you know, let's not ask questions. Like, uh, who cares? Here, there was not a willingness to answer questions such as, what is the meaningness of this number of schools that you've built? How has that progressed you towards your goal? Eh, don't answer that. Don't, don't ask that question. That's not a question you're allowed to ask. How do you show this as evidence of success and not just evidence of effort or evidence that you're just doing a good thing? Teaching people how to raise chickens, you know? Hey, it's a success if you measure it by how much we've taught people to raise chickens in Afghanistan. Uh, and it only cost a trillion dollars. Uh, I don't think the key benchmark is the one I've suggested, which is how many Afghans are getting killed. <laughs> James Thomas. Oh, that, that's an interesting one, I guess. Uh, if the number's going up, you're losing. If the number's going down, you're winning. It's as simple as that. Oh, well, last year, 3,800 Afghan civilians were killed in the war. Um, that's the most in one year since the United Nations began tracking casualties a decade ago. So... I know this was a, a long, and I practically read the whole article. I suggest you read it. There's, there's six parts. That was just part one. Uh, the point of me talking about this to you and letting you know about what's going on is this has nothing to do with impeachment. This is what you're being distracted from. This is what they don't want you to see. This is what the government doesn't want you to see. This is what Congress wants you to not pay attention to. This is what the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about. This is what the cathedral wants everyone not looking at. They don't want you asking these questions. They don't want you criticizing the war in Afghanistan. This is one of many things they don't want you looking about at, but this is one of them. They want you focused on this ridiculous circus impeachment crap. That's what they want you focused on. So I suggest you not focus on that. I suggest you go, and again, I know we hate on the Washington Post a lot, but Craig Whitlock, great job. Go read this article uh, in this series in the Washington Post, if you want to be informed about stuff that actually matters, not Adam Schiff's <laughs> wet dream about removing the president. <sighs> that was a little bit of a rant. I got riled up. Thank you for watching. We will see you all tomorrow for Friday's Confetti Live. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe. You can go to watch this stuff on BitChute. BitChute's better. And, uh, and you can also go to unsafespace.com to sign up for our newsletter, which we don't really send out, but we will, once we start getting banned from YouTube, we'll use it to contact everyone. So if you want to stay in contact with us, that's the way to do it. Thanks all, and have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.